Spirit, through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Can we thank the band this morning for leading us? Would you forgive me? Um, as I'm being adjusted. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Jared Spa for, for being with us this morning. Um, I told him this morning we can be the next Shane and Shane. Jared and Jared, it'll be... It'll be great. Y'all would love it. Um, and uh, I'm glad that he's here. I'm glad to have the opportunity to open the Word of God for us this morning as Chad is out preaching um, a conference um, in one of the I states, either Illinois or Indiana. I can't remember. Um, so it, it's hard for me to uh, keep track. But I'm glad to have the opportunity to open the Word with you. We're going to continue our series in James. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning. So if you would open your Bibles to James chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 14 through 26. <clears throat> As we were looking at the schedule for the fall and for this series in particular, Chad decided he would leave and give me the easiest part of James to um, preach this morning. Um, I say that sarcastically because this is one of the more difficult parts of James to have to preach. Um, so we're going to read there, and then I'm going to have you do some work. We're going to flip over to Romans chapter 3 and read there as well. Um, and so I'm going to start here in chapter 2, um, beginning in verse 14, and read down through the end of the chapter. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, if James rubs your sensibilities wrong there, or it feels a little strange when we as New Testament Christians often focus on justification by faith alone in Christ alone, there's good reason for that. Let's look together at Romans 3, verses 27, and we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 5. Paul begins in Romans 3, 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. 
On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So at the end of the passage in James, we have James say, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And then at the end of this passage we read from Paul, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. These statements seem to contradict one another. It seems that Paul and James are saying two very different things. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther did not like the book of James particularly. He called it a book of straw. He was so focused on the fact that we are justified by faith in Christ alone that he didn't like James here in chapter 2 kind of messing with that, it seems. But as we look at these passages this morning, we have to confess two things. We have to confess two things that we believe One, that God's word does not contradict itself. We here at Grace Bible Church confess that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, that the word of God is breathed out, inspired by him, and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We believe it is therefore true and coherent, that the Bible does not teach falsehood and that it does not contradict itself. We believe this because we believe Jesus proved himself to be the Christ of God through his life, death, and resurrection. And he taught us that the scripture cannot be broken. John ten thirty five. We believe that God tells the truth and he cannot lie according to Titus 1 verse 2. That he is not a God of confusion but a God of clarity. So first, we must confess and we believe that God's word does not contradict itself, that it is clear. But two, we have to confess that words can be ambiguous. We are sinful. We are culturally biased. And the language itself that we use can confuse us when different words carry the same meaning. And when words, uh, or when the same words carry different meanings. So take, for example, the English word rock. It might mean a stone. Or it could mean a type of music. Or it could be something you do in a rocking chair. Or it could be a man's name. That's, yeah, it took you a little bit. Some of you will take that in your pocket and laugh later. Um, So, Rock is a simple English word, but it has all these different ways that it can be used. So we have to confess that words can be ambiguous, and this is what we have to address as we look at the text this morning. One of the things I want to point out as we look at this text is the audience to which these two men are writing. So Paul 
we read is the apostle to the Gentiles. He has been sent particularly to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. And so over and over again in the New Testament, we find Paul arguing with Jewish Christians, including the apostle Peter himself, that the Gentile converts don't need to be circumcised, that they don't need to follow the dietary law, and they don't have to do any other works to find favor with God. There was this common theme in the converted Jewish population who has converted to Christianity, who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Gentiles who want to be a part of this new Christian community have to first become Jews through the law and then have faith in Christ and be adopted into God's family. And Paul is constantly refuting this false gospel. He's saying Gentiles do not have to do works of the law to be grafted into the family of God. Now, James, on the other hand, as we read in chapter 1, his audience that he's speaking to is mainly of Jewish descent. These people are those who put a lot of stock in their theological prowess and their family pedigree. He's writing to them from the idea that their knowledge of God and or their historical relationship as a part of the nation of Israel does nothing to justify them. We see Jesus do the same thing with the Pharisees over and over again. He challenges them that the works that they're doing are not what justify them, but faith in Christ alone is what justifies them. So we have to be aware of the context in which these men are writing and to whom they're writing as we read these texts. And I believe that this text is important for everyone who claims to follow Christ. That's why it's in the Bible. But it's especially helpful for those of us who may have been raised in a Bible Belt church-going context or been of a part of a Christian home our entire lives. In many ways, our faith can be like that of Jewish believers. We rely on our ability to answer questions rightly about God. I know the Sunday school answers. I know where to find things in the Bible or we may rely on our family heritage. My grandmother and grandfather went to church. They were faithful Christians. They took my parents to church as kids. I have been in church since I was in the nursery. People in our context here in South Texas, this is a lot of our story, that we grew up going to church. This is not new. Some of you, praise God, did not grow in that context and have been brought in. The gospel has gloriously saved you and made you a part of this family. But I believe this text is helpful to those of us who have been a part of church-going families to shake us to our core, to provoke within us some thoughts of whether or not we are actually in the faith. That's what James is challenging these Jewish believers with. It's what Jesus challenged the Pharisees with. So with that said... Let's consider what James is saying and examine our own hearts this morning to see, as the Apostle Paul said, whether or not we are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13.5. So looking back at our text in James, there's one question he poses in verse 14 that we're going to hone in on this morning and it will kind of be the main theme that runs through... Um, the sermon this morning, he asked this question, can that faith save him? 
So the question this morning for you that I want you to write down if you're a note taker, will your faith save you? Will your faith save you? We see in this text that there are only two kinds of faith. Only two possible roads we can take. Your faith is either a dead, demonic faith, or your faith is a living, saving faith. So first, what I want us to do is look at what it looks like to have a dead, demonic faith, beginning in verse 15. James tells us, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So first, a dead and demonic faith speaks to, but does not serve others. It speaks to, but does not serve others. One theologian said, idle wishes indulge the tongue rather than controlling it. Mere talk does nothing for the poor, and it is thoroughly worldly to let sentimental talk supplant loving deeds. That's what this person here in James chapter 2 is doing. They're seeing brothers and sisters who are not well fed, not well clothed, and they say to them, go in peace, be warm and filled. I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you, sister. Hopefully someone will bring you clothes and God will answer your prayer for food. But it's just words. And idle wishes indulge the tongue. We like to feel good about ourselves, so we say these trite phrases and words that make us feel like a good Christian. I'm praying with you that you find a job. I'm praying that someone will come along and take care of you, bring you meals when you're sick. I'm praying that God would improve your financial status rather than sacrificially offering from our own resources. It's easy to to say something to someone, to offer well wishes. It's another thing to sacrificially love and serve them We see this um, in sports. I'm not going to say any names, but imagine an athlete, um, maybe a quarterback, if you will, who talks about how great he is. He stands in press conferences and talks about what a wonderful quarterback he is, his abilities. He blames all the problems on everybody else in the team, but none of the problems are his. He is really good at what he does. His coach may even extol the excellencies of his ability to draw up plays or make adjustments on the fly. But if that quarterback throws multiple interceptions every game and never does anything to help put points on the board, nobody believes he's actually a great quarterback. In that case, we would say numbers don't lie. You can talk about how great you are all the time. Your coach may even believe that you're really good, but the numbers don't lie. And I would say the same is true of our faith. We can talk about faith that we have in God. We may be able to answer the questions in the right way. 
But if our faith never acts, the numbers don't lie. If I can look at your life and I don't see Jesus, I just hear talk out of your mouth, the numbers don't lie. See, dead and demonic faith is that which speaks niceties and trite phrases, but does nothing to serve our brothers and sisters. Jesus tells us what the result of this faith is. In Matthew 25, verse 41, he says, I will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. It seems as though James heard what his half-brother Jesus said when he was here on this earth. And James is saying, people who do this, who don't follow through with serving others, have a dead and demonic faith. At the end of verse 17, he says, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. That's a key phrase there. He puts by itself. He's not talking about faith that does work. Faith that is followed up with action. Secondly, a dead and demonic faith believes but does not bow to God's will. A dead and demonic faith believes but does not bow to God's will. Verse 18, if you'll look with me there. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And James would reply, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here, this is kind of hard to understand, but James is making a rhetorical argument here in verse 18. He's making up this other person that may argue back with him. And you see it there in quotes, you have faith and I have works. Now what does he mean by this? He's making an argument that a Christian might say, well, there are spiritual gifts, and we all have been given different spiritual gifts. And one of the spiritual gifts, as we read in Galatians 5, is the gift of faith. And we see in other places that the Spirit gives the gift of service. And so this person is making an argument to James that, well, you have faith, and I have works. They don't have to go together. We've each been given different spiritual gifts. And James' argument to that is, show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James says, faith is just talk until I see something. Faith is just you saying something that you give assent to, that you might have some knowledge of, but if I don't see actions, you can't prove your faith to me. It's as if I was saying that I believe that stool over there can hold me up. And you say, okay, go sit on it and let's see. And I say, no, I don't, I don't have to sit on it. I believe it will. I have faith that it will. It's made of solid wood. It looks sturdy. It holds together. I believe that it will hold me up. And you say, well, let's test it out. And I say, I don't have to. I know that it will. This is the argument that James is having. You say that you have faith, but I see nothing in your life that shows that you have faith. And you can keep saying that you have faith, but I'm not going to believe it until action follows. 
And what he does is he goes even a step further and compares it to demons. He says, The faith that gives knowledgeable assent but does not bow the will to Christ is the same faith that demons have. It's the same faith that demons have. They believe that God is one. He says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There are a lot of people that you will come across that say they believe in God. This does not make somebody a Christian. It's maddening how many times I come across articles and headlines on social media that will say, so-and-so celebrity has come out as a Christian, which is a weird thing to say, come out as a Christian. Only to read this long article that somebody has written about this person's great faith in Jesus Christ and the proof that they give that this person is a confessing Christian is that it says they believe in God. Like there's some quote about this person saying, I believe in God. Now, for those of you who are concerned, I'm not convert, con, uh, concerning uh, Kanye West in this. There's some things that say that he may have real saving faith. Um, but in general, we see this with celebrity cultures. Christians want to embrace celebrity. We think, oh, this is really cool. A celebrity has professed faith. But for a celebrity to simply say, I believe in God is not Christian faith. Just saying you believe or assenting to something is not Christian faith. Even believing the right things about God is not enough to save you. As James says, the demons believe that God is one. They even believe that Jesus is God's son. But orthodox theological ideas do not produce saving faith. In fact, for them, instead what we see is it causes fear because they have not added love of God to their knowledge of him. The demons also believe and shudder. This word here refers to a lack of peace or a trembling fear of God. We see this in the Gospels when Jesus approaches a person who is um, overtaken by demons, who is possessed with demons. The demons recognize who he is. They even call him by name. They know he is the Christ of God. But their response to him is always fear. Don't kill us. Is it your time? Don't destroy us. Let us go into the pigs instead, at one point they ask. The demons believe who Jesus is. They know he is God. They confess that, but they don't love God. Their knowledge of him doesn't lead to faith in him. They don't bow their will to the will of Christ. One theologian has said, if the demons might hold such faith, and still remain in perdition. By that we mean damnation. Men might hold it and go to perdition. If demons might hold such faith and still remain in perdition, men might hold it and go to perdition. So does your faith cause you to bow your knee before God and living according, uh, live according to his will? Or is your knowledge that has no effect on your life. If so, you have a dead faith and it's shared with demons. 
But James doesn't leave us there. That would be a depressing place to stop. He points to the story of a man who believed in God and loved God so much that he was willing to kill his own son. We pick up in verse 20 with what a living and saving faith is. Verse 20 says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. James obviously here is referring to the story of when God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son. In Genesis chapter 15, we, we see part of this story. Um, God had come and promised Abraham a nation of descendants that would bless the world. However, he and Sarah are both aging and still don't have an heir when God comes to them in Genesis 15 to reinforce the promise that Abraham would have a son. At this time, Abraham's 75, and Sarah is 65. Now for us, we would be going, huh, clock's passed. Like, time's up, buddy. Like, there's no way Sarah is giving birth to a son. At this point in history, the life expectancy was around 120 so it's not crazy for us now and in our day to believe that a 40 or 45-year-old woman could give birth. It would be much the same here. That there's still this slim chance that Sarah can have a child. But years begin to pass. And the slim chance has come down to none. And God comes to Abraham again to remind him of his promise lest he forget. Genesis 15, 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So God reinforces this promise and Abraham is like, I just don't believe it. We're way past childbearing age at this point. And then what happens? They wait. It's at least another 14 years before Sarah would give birth at the age of 90 years old. They finally hold this son, this child of the promise that God had said he would make of Abraham a great nation. Descendants that outnumbered the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And God comes to them and he tells Abraham, go to the place that I will show you and sacrifice your son Isaac. What a blow. At this point, Isaac is still a child. Abraham and Sarah are no doubt overwhelmed with joy at what God has done in bringing them a child at such a late age and this miraculous work that he's done to give them a descendant. And then God says, Abraham, I want you to go kill him. 
And the Bible tells us that Abraham didn't him haul around and, you know, go back and check with God a few more times. Are you sure? Like, you told me that this child is going to be the one from whom I get a lot of descendants. And now you want me... I don't think killing him is the way you're going to do that. Abraham doesn't question God. Instead, the Bible tells us Abraham rose up early in the morning. And he took Isaac and he took some servants with him. They took wood to build an altar. How can Abraham have this kind of faith? How could he have the kind of faith that would kill his only son? Well, the text gives us a little clue. In Genesis 22, 5, Abraham tells his servants as they approach the mountain, he asks them to stay at the base of the mountain, and he and the child would go on ahead. And he promises them... We will come back to you. Now, if you're the servants, you have to be thinking, uh, does he know what he's doing when he gets up there? Like God's told him to kill Isaac. How, how are they going to come back together? But Hebrews eleven nineteen says, Abraham believed that if it was necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham had such faith in the promises of God that he believed, even if I obey and kill my son, God can raise him from the dead. He will still do what he has promised he will do. It is by this act of faith that Abraham's belief in God is confirmed. In Genesis twenty-two twelve, God says, Now I know you fear God. Now I know you fear God. Back in Genesis 15, God had already said Abraham's faith, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith made him righteous. But then later in Genesis 22, after he has willingly gone up the mountain, laid his son on the altar, God speaks from heaven and says, now I believe that you fear God. And here in our text, in verse 21, James says, Abraham's life was confirmed or confirmed by his works. Abraham's faith was confirmed or completed by his works. In other words, while God had declared Abraham righteous because of his belief in God in Genesis 15, his salvation wasn't assured until it was proved that his belief led to action. God said, yes, you believe. You are righteous. But until action follows, we can't be sure that the faith that he has is saving. Until he's actually asked to do something that would cost him, we can't know if his faith is actually saving faith. And so James says in verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the scripture that God had spoken, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous, was fulfilled after Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac or his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. One Swiss scholar has said this about faith. That I say I have faith cannot possibly free me from sin, guilt, and punishment. How could something I say be my deliverance. 
Not that I say I have faith, but that I exercise faith. That saves me. That situates me in God's peace. That brings me God's grace and is my righteousness before God. If faith is merely words, then it would be of use, after all, to say I have faith. Why not? But that's a sinister thought. Is that all I am? A thinker and a talker? God has given me life, and that means he has planted a will in me that can act, that must act with unalterable necessity. Service to God is action. I should thank God that I can act as one who trusts. The fact that we are created in the image of God means that we're not just talkers and thinkers, but that we have a will. We have a will to exercise And if we can be saved just by merely saying that I have faith in God, then everybody should just say, I have faith. So many of you know my wife works for NASA. What, what? I married up. Um, So for the past four years, uh, she has worked on a project designing uh, parachutes for the next uh, crew vehicle, the the capsule that NASA is working on called Orion. Now, often when she would tell people, I work on parachutes, there was always a quizzical look. Like, parachutes, that's that's a thing that we have. Y'all know we have those already. (laughs) You're designing parachutes, you're creating parachutes. Now, you may not realize this, but when it comes to um, space capsules, um, parachutes are are kind of an involved deal. It takes a lot of work and design to slow a vehicle that's coming out of orbit. In fact, I learned, being married to her, that there are 12 parachutes involved in slowing down this particular capsule. And they release at different times and different points as it's coming out of uh, space into the Earth's atmosphere to slow down the capsule a little bit at a time so that our astronauts can land safely back on Earth. Each step of this process takes an incredible amount of planning and engineering and testing She's flown out to Yuma, Arizona over and over again to test their parachutes with unmanned capsules. So for four years, a whole team of people have worked on the parachute design. And in September, they turned in their finished product. They turned in their finished product, put their stamp of approval on it. These parachutes will be used on Orion, and the team of people that worked tirelessly on this design have faith that their parachutes will accomplish the mission. However, their faith in those parachutes will not be tested until the time when we put people in that capsule and send them into orbit and bring them back to Earth, and the parachutes work just like they were designed to do. Until then, it's just this belief that they would work. But when we have astronauts in that capsule who land safely back on Earth, then the parachutes have been tested. The work has been tested. The faith is realized, or we might say their work is justified. And in this sense, we mean their work is vindicated. All that they've done has proven true. 
All that they said would happen has happened. So it is with our faith in God. James speaks of a faith that is vindicated by its working, whereas Paul, he uses the word justified in a judicial sense, that we are declared righteous by faith alone. James is using the word justified in a proving sense, that we are vindicated. Our faith that we spoke is real because action followed. Our faith is proven true. Lastly, a living and saving faith speaks to and serves others. A living, saving faith is a faith that speaks to and serves others. It doesn't just speak with trite phrases, but it serves. And often, look at verse 25 with me. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. We want to look at this story of Rahab. Some of you may know who Rahab is. She's a prostitute living in Jericho at the time when God had told the nation of Israel that they were to go in and take over the land. And Joshua has sent spies in to see um, what they're going to have to do to take over these people. Beginning in verse 1 of Joshua 2, it says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, as we hear Rahab's confession here in verses 9 through 11, that sounds like faith. I've heard of the God of the Israelites. I've heard about what he did. We all fear this God. It sounds like faith, but her faith has been confirmed by her action. Her action to hide these spies. Later, she'll, she'll hang a scarlet rope out her window 
so they'll know where to find her. Rahab's faith led to action. She welcomed the spies, she hid them, and she sent them away safely because she believed the God of Israel lives. She risked her life, and by doing so, she gained it. She risked her life, and by doing so, she gained it. Brothers and sisters, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Words, knowledge, and faith that is not accompanied with actions is meaningless. It will not save. In fact, those words and knowledge and faith, we learn from James, same that the demons have. And they are bound for eternity in hell. New behavior flows from a new heart given to us by God. Those who are justified by faith alone in Christ will live out that faith. So let me encourage you with one very practical way this week that I would love for you to spend some time applying this text. I want you to make two lists. Two lists. Maybe when you sit down to read your Bible in the morning, whenever you do your quiet time, you could do this as a group activity with your life group or with friend over lunch. One, make a list of hope. And two, a list of celebration. A list of hope should include areas where we hope and pray to show our faith more clearly than we have before. That could be in serving others in ways that are inconvenient or difficult. Maybe you know someone who is poorly clothed or poorly fed. And you say, I want to show my faith more clearly. I want to prove to myself. I want to do like Paul said and examine to see whether I'm in the faith. To test myself. And give sacrificially to serve others. It could mean that you need to worship God in sacrificial ways. These are the two great commandments. Love God, love others. We do that by our faith and by our works. So it may be that you need to worship God in sacrificial ways. That may mean giving to missions. Going on mission. Doing things to share the gospel that are hard and difficult for you. Second, the list of celebration. This is a list that praises God for those places where by his grace you have demonstrated the reality of your faith. Examine your life and look back on where have I been tested and proven to be faithful? What are some things that God has put me through and that I was able to cling to him through, to worship him through, to serve well, to love well, and celebrate God's grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to um, keep the ceremonial law, that we don't have to eat certain things, sacrifice animals, be circumcised, God, but that we, we can come to you with faith alone in Christ alone. 
And we are counted as righteous. But God, I fear there are many of us who have words. And we say the right things, but we are not serving Christ. So Father, I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts to examine ourselves to test whether we are in the faith. And that you would bring us the peace and the joy of knowing that you are our Father. And we are heirs with Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.